Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. of my death have been greatly exaggerated, um, but the rumors of me turning half a century old are true. I am now officially 50 years old um, as of this weekend. So, never thought I'd make it this far, neither did my mama, but um, here we are. You're stuck with me, at least for a little bit longer, although it's one day at a time now is what I hear, Um, so we'll see how that goes. Man, um, I want to give a quick shout out uh, because there are people, and you hear it mentioned probably every week, but there are people who consistently watch every single Sunday all over the country. Um, And in fact, I believe they're watching um, right now down in the Grand Rapids, Michigan area, but um, some of my family, Kittry's family, down there. And so I think um, Jonas, Ellie, Sadie, um, Annie, and Marilee, who is the infant, who probably has no idea that I'm giving a shout out to her right now. And so thanks for joining us, guys. Um, And every week that's happening all over the country and all over the world, which is actually a real privilege. In fact, um, here two summers ago, we were in Homer camping at um, Driftwood Inn Campground, and I'm walking by a campsite, and I hear someone say, are you a pastor at Church on the Rock? And I'm always leery when I hear someone say that. Any number of reasons they're asking that question, and so I'm usually like, maybe. Anyways, turns out um, they recognized me from my voice because they have been watching in Guam or listening in Guam because they can't get the video, so they can only get the audio, and they download the audio and listen to it there and recognize that's a creepy feeling, just in case you're wondering. Like, my kids don't even recognize me by my voice. Like, that's extraordinary. So anyways, that's all for free. Um, We're going to jump right in here. We're in our series in Samuel. Uh, The header for our series is Sons, Sovereign, and Seduction. And um, we're going to be taking a look today at what is known as the Davidic Covenant. That sounds super exciting, I know, but trust me, it actually really is super exciting. And uh, my title today is Tell Me What You Want. You're welcome. We're going to kick it off, and let's get another song in your head. Father Abraham is where we're going to start, because Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. And it should be children, I always have felt like, um, because, well, we aren't all sons. Anyways, um, but I want to give a little bit of backstory. We're going to just look at a quick timeline here to bring us up to speed, because there's some really specific things I want you to understand about what's about to happen in our story today. And so if you were to look back, right, the world begins at the creation, and then there's the flood and the Tower of Babel, and there are a bunch of things that happen in between. But to bring our story current, there's a man named Abram. And Abram is called by God to leave the land that he lives in and that he does not yet know about. 
Um, and, uh, and so Abram will have Isaac, and Isaac will have Jacob. And from Jacob comes what are known as the 12 tribes of Israel. It really is 12 sons of Jacob. And Jacob's 12 sons end up having families, and those families become what are known as the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, they move to the land of Egypt at a particular point, and in Egypt they find um, uh, rescue from a famine that is going on in the region. But eventually, over time, the pharaohs, the kings of Egypt, become more and more concerned about the population of Jews who are there. And so they end up becoming slaves in the land. And going forward from there, for about 400 years, they are caught in slavery in Egypt. And at the end of that time, a man named Moses is raised up, and Moses will be the one who is led by God to lead them out of slavery and into liberty, but more importantly, into relationship with God. Israel will be reintroduced to God in the wilderness. And in the wilderness, they will be given the law, and they will be given what is known as the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle is a really important feature in the lives of the Hebrews or the Jews or the nation of Israel. And God gives very specific instructions. In fact, um, in Exodus 25, these are the instructions that the Lord gives in reference to the tabernacle. Exodus 25, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, and skipping down verse 8, have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live among them. You must build its tabernacle and its furnishings exactly according to the pattern I will show you. And in Exodus 25 and on, what you'll discover is that God has explicit instructions for what he wants his tabernacle to look like. It's like every other verse is, and then the Lord said, and the Lord gave instruction for. I mean, it's nonstop God giving explicit instructions for every single teeny tiny detail of the tabernacle. And here's what the tabernacle is. It's a tent. It can be set up, and it can be taken down, and every time the children of Israel are on the move, it's on the move, right? And the presence of the Lord shows up at this tabernacle in a really specific way. At nighttime, what they see is a pillar of fire above it, and during the daytime, what they see is the smoke or the cloud above it. In fact, for the children of Israel, this harkens all the way back to Abraham. When God made a covenant with Abraham, and God puts Abraham into a deep sleep, and he makes a covenant with Abraham, and God shows up at the sacrifice that's made in a flaming furnace and a smoking pot. In other words, a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire. And so when Israel sees the same symbol in the wilderness over the tabernacle, they immediately know this is the covenant-keeping God, the same one that made a covenant with Abram all the way back there, is now making a covenant with us and walking with us right here and right now. In fact, if you want to track that all the way forward, go to the day of Pentecost when the church is born in the church age, and they're all gathered in an upper room, and suddenly this mighty rushing wind blows into the room, and these little pillars of fire appear above every one of their heads. If you're wondering where God is, there he is. He's in you, and he's in you, and he's in you, and he's in you. And this tabernacle was a really critical piece of Israel's history. In fact, for more than 450 years, this would be the place 
where they would go to worship the Lord. It would be set up in a few different locations once they took possession of the land, but for over 450 years, Israel faithfully worshiped God there. And during the time of the judges and then Samuel, our character that we've been looking at, all the way into the kings. And here's what happens when the kings show up on the scene, which brings me to, oops, we did it again. You're welcome. If you want, you can just go back to Father Abraham if you don't want that song stuck in your head. God has been really clear with the nation of Israel that they are not to have a king. In fact, all the way back in Deuteronomy, he gave them instructions about not having a king, and he says this, but someday you're going to ask for a king. I'm going to tell you what a king is going to be like, what he's going to do to you and what he's going to do to your children, and then I'm also going to tell you what kind of king you should choose for yourselves. It shouldn't be someone who has many wives. It shouldn't be someone who has lots of horses and lots of land or goes to Egypt for help or all of these kinds of things. He's really clear instructions about what kind of person would be a king for the nation of Israel, but he's been very clear, you're not to have a king, but the day is going to come when you're going to ask for one. And that day does come in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 8, if you've got your Bible, remember I'm encouraging you to have a paperback Bible so that you can read along with us um, and then also be taking notes. Here it is, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4. Finally, all the elders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. Look, they told him, you are now old. I feel like this is going to be a conversation we're all going to be having real soon. You're going to be like, look, Pastor Jonathan, you are old now. You are old and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. And Samuel was displeased with their request and went to the Lord for guidance. Here's what the Lord says. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods. And now they are giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. And so he does. He gives long instruction to them about what a king will do. He will take your sons and your daughters. He will make them work in his palaces and as his perfumers and cook his food. And he will get horses and have stables and he'll send your children to war. That's what a king will do. But you asked for it, so you're going to get it. And God selects a man named Saul to be the king. Verse 18, when that day comes, you will beg for relief from this king you are demanding. But then the Lord will not help you. But the people refused to listen to Samuel's warning. Even so, we still want a king, they said. This is mistake number one, if you could call it that, for the children of Israel. They're in the land. They've taken possession of the land, but they're no longer satisfied with the way God is leading them. And so now they want to be like the nations around them. They want a king and Saul is selected to be that king, even after Samuel has warned them what that king will be like. And here's the crazy thing, is that God will take the line of the kings and still bless the people of Israel through it. 
which is really interesting to me because God is actually the master of redemption, even in the middle of our rebellion. He's been doing this since the creation of the world. He's really, really good at it. He's really good at taking our moments of rejection of him and his ways and turning them into moments of blessing for us in the days ahead. It's actually what he does. He takes the mistakes that we make and directs us towards repentance and restoration over and over and over and over again. It should never surprise you when you see God take a poor choice of humanity and turn it into a blessing for them. Because that's what he does in our lives even right now, and right here, in this day, and in this time. Look at your own life and those things that you thought would have been devastating. God alone has the capacity to turn them into blessings. That's what he does for the nation of Israel. And so they move from having Saul as a king, and Saul makes his own bad choices, to having David as their king. And David has been fighting battles for the nation of Israel, bringing peace to the nation of Israel. And suddenly in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where we're going to spend the bulk of our time today, Daniel is at peace in his kingdom. Here it is, 2 Samuel chapter 7. When King David was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies, the king summoned Nathan the prophet. Look, David said, I am living in a beautiful cedar palace, but the ark of God is out there in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, go ahead and do whatever you have in mind for the Lord is with you. David says, listen, this doesn't seem right. Like, I'm living in a beautiful cedar home. I have the resources and the access to everything that I want. I've built the mansion that I desire. Here I sit in my mansion, but God is living in a tent in the wilderness. This just isn't right. Like, how could God's house look like that and my house look like this? And it seems noble, and it seems right, and it seems good, and it seems kind, and it seems generous. And so Nathan the prophet, the voice of the Lord to David, says, go and do whatever is in your heart to do, for God is with you. But, it's always a challenge when this word shows up, but that same night, the Lord said to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord has declared. Are you the one to build a house for me to live in? I have never lived in a house from the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until this very day. I have always moved from one place to another with a tent and a tabernacle as my dwelling. Yet, no matter where I have gone with the Israelites... I have never once complained to Israel's tribal leaders, the shepherds of my people Israel. I have never asked them, why haven't you built me a beautiful cedar house? He says, oh, Nathan, you've missed it. You've made a mistake. I want you to go tell David, I never asked for a house. I have been exactly where I wanted to be, in the midst of my people, tabernacling 
with them, residing with them wherever they went. When you look at the tabernacle and the explicit instructions the Lord gives, one of the things that stands out is that this is a portable tent covered in sacrificial skins, animal skins, housing the presence of the Lord. The presence of the Lord covered in sacrificial skin with his people. Are you picking up on a little bit of symbolism here that might be different than a stone building? Like God was very intentional about where he wanted to reside, and it had a lot more to do with the future than it did with the structure. In fact, if you were to think about it for a moment and you were to say, oh no, God, you cannot reside in this little tent. I am going to build you a temple. How big would the temple need to be for God to be like, oh, that's a good house for me? Right? I mean, if you were to zoom out, look at planet Earth, like with those apps, you know, look at planet Earth, and you're looking at Earth from God's vantage point, and you just keep zooming in and in and in, and it's getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and finally you're on one little tiny piece of geographic land in the nation of Israel, and right here on this little bitty hilltop, I'm going to build a giant temple that is teeny, teeny, tiny from God's perspective. There you go, I made you a majestic house. But often the things we build have very little to do with being for God, and they're more for our ego than anything else. Because just like they wanted to be like the nations around them, in this moment they want to have a temple like the nations around them. And God wants them to understand two things. The first one is this. I'm not like the other gods. Not only do I not need you to build me a temple, if I wanted a temple, I would make one. He says, the entire universe is my temple and the earth is my footstool. Like, you don't understand the scope and the majesty of who I am, and I never asked for a temple. Which is really interesting because the other thing he communicates to them is, never once have I complained to you about not having a house of cedar. In other words, I'm also not like you. I'm not like the other gods that the nations have. I'm not needy, and I don't need you to build me something. But I'm also not like you were in the wilderness, whining and complaining every single step of the way. Never once did I come to you and complain about the place I was residing. I'm quite content. I am not a needy God by any stretch of the imagination. Verse 8, now... Go and say to my servant David, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I took you from tending sheep in the pasture and selected you to be the leader of my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all your enemies before your eyes. Now I will make your name as famous as anyone who has ever lived on the earth. And I will provide a homeland for my people Israel, planting them in a secure place where they will never be disturbed. Evil nations won't oppress them as as they've done in the past, starting from the time I appointed judges to rule my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. In other words, David, just remember, I'm the one who rescued you. I'm the one who delivered you. I'm the one who brought you out of, right? Like, I'm the one who's done all of it, David. Now, here it is. 
Furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you. David, I don't need you to build me a house. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a house for you. I'm going to make a heritage for you, a dynasty of kings. For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Sound familiar? Which brings me to one way or another. I want to get you, get you, get you, get you on. <laughs> Communication is hard, as my good friend Jonathan Garland says frequently. Um, the thing is, David misunderstands what the Lord is saying in this moment. But I want to ask you a question. Did God give instruction to or not to build a temple? Did he? Uh, like, imagine if you came over to my house and for my 50th birthday, and it's not too late because you can celebrate a little bit longer, and you said, I want to give you a brand spanking new snow machine. And I replied, I don't need a snow machine. I've never asked for a snow machine. I could buy a snow machine at any time. I could build a snow machine from scratch. And I tell you all of those things, but did I tell you you can't give me a snow machine? No. In fact, the Lord doesn't explicitly say to David that he can't build a temple. He just says to David, I've never asked for one. And there's actually a purpose for the tabernacle that I did ask for. But he doesn't explicitly tell David that he cannot build a temple. In fact, we have much evidence that the Lord chooses to bless the thing that David puts his hand to. Even though God never asked for it, and God would have been just fine if David had never built it. God actually chooses to redeem the decision that David makes. And here's the reason. Because his intentions were good. In fact, in Acts chapter 7, take a look at this with me. Acts chapter 7, picking it up in verse 44. Acts 7, 44 our ancestors carried the tabernacle with them through the wilderness. It was constructed according to the plan God had shown to Moses. Years later, when Joshua led our ancestors in battle against the nations that God drove out of this land, the tabernacle was taken with them into their new territory, and it stayed there until the time of King David. David found favor with God and asked for the privilege of building a permanent temple for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who actually built it. Now listen to this. However, the Most High doesn't live in temples made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Ask the Lord, could you build me such a resting place? Didn't my hands make both heaven and earth? Like, 
Listen, you need to understand. David asked for the privilege, and he found favor with the Lord, and God was okay with it. But God did not ask for it, and he did not give explicit command for it to happen. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, it says this, don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? God will destroy anyone who destroys this temple or the church, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. When God speaks through Nathan the prophet to David, here's what he's telling him. A day is coming when one of your descendants, who will be the son of David, will be the Messiah, will be Jesus, and he will come and he will build a temple that will never be destroyed. He will build an everlasting kingdom, and that everlasting kingdom he will reign over for all of eternity. And by the way, you're that temple. If you're wondering where the presence of God is residing on the day of Pentecost when the little pillar of fire shows up on each one of their heads, everyone in that room recognizes, found God. He's not in the temple anymore. The curtain was torn from top to bottom. The Holy Spirit has escaped. Where is he at? Found him. He's in you, and he's in you, and he's in you, and he's in you, and he's in you. You are the temples of the living God. These portable tents wrapped in sacrificial skin moving about in the world at the direction of the Spirit of God. Listen, David asked for the privilege of building a permanent structure, but here's what you need to understand. God could have never been housed in it and was never intended to be. In fact, when you get to the book of Revelation, Revelation 21, as everything is wrapping up, it, here's what the author says. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I don't know. I've always wondered. Maybe there's snow. Maybe you can snow machine. Maybe they're still hunting and fishing. We don't know any of those answers. I can just tell you that we are not wandering around on streets of gold and glass seas forever. There's actually a new heaven and a new earth that is created. I saw the new heaven and the new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth have disappeared. And the sea was gone, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He's always wanted to dwell among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. Verse 22, and I saw no temple in the city for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of sun or moon for the glory of God illuminates the city and the Lamb is its light. Listen, the reality is the day is coming that the temple will no longer be in existence. In fact, currently it is not in existence, but even when it is rebuilt and they sacrifice in it again, the day is coming when God will fulfill the design that he originally intended, and that is that he is the temple, that he dwells among his people, and there will be no need for the symbolism in the future. Which brings me to the rules of engagement and the will of God. How many of you would love to know the will of God for your life? I'm going to tell you. Just, uh, so if you want to know, now if you don't want to know, I'm not going to tell you. So raise your hand if you want to know the will of God. Okay, yep, okay. I didn't see some hands go up, so just, just to be clear, I'm not going to tell you people who didn't raise your hands what the will of God is. Um, how, how to know the will of God for your life? Because I think this is a question that often um, comes up 
for us. And, and if you were to um, just take a, a, an example like this, this big circle, um, in the middle of this circle, just place um, the general will of God. If you were to do a word search on Blue Letter Bible, or um, if you still know what a Strong's Concordance is, it takes a little bit longer in the Strong's Concordance, but um, you can do it online. I don't know if you knew that you can. Um, but the will of God, if you were to search the will of God, what you would actually discover is that there are some really, really general things. For this is the will of God for you, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's pretty general. And in fact, if you were to look up the will of God in the Scriptures, primarily what you would discover are those sorts of things, or what we call the general will of God. It's for everyone, everywhere, at all times. And some of the general rules that God lays out are explicit in the Scriptures. Now, what we really want is we want to know the specific will of God. Right? We want to hear from God like we view people in the Scriptures hearing from God. But what you have to realize is that that is such a minuscule percentage of the way that God communicates, even in the Scriptures. If you were to take all the narratives and all the stories and all the people included in the Scriptures, you would find that the vast majority of the people referenced in the Scriptures don't actually get the specific will of God for every circumstance in their lives. And And in this category, there are things that are outside the will of God. And I want to give you four questions to ask in order to discern if this is outside the will of God or not. Is it sinful? Is it selfish? Is it sacrilegious? Or is it stupid? There they are. Those are the four things. Um, Is it sinful? Is it selfish? Is it sacrilegious? Or is it stupid? There are some things that are just clearly listed as sin. There are some things that, depending on our motivation could be sinful. If selfishness is our motivation, then it is wrong in those circumstances. There are things that are sacrilegious, and here's what I mean by that. They are actually unholy or irreverent towards God. I'm not talking about, I wore a hat in church. That's not sacrilege, right? But things that are actually unholy, unloving, right? These things that actually um, diminish the nature and character of who God is, and then is this just stupid, right? And when you look at those things, right, that helps qualify some things. And now I want to go to the next one here because the will of God is actually, if you were to look at this large circle, it's just a little circle in the middle. And then there are all kinds of things in life that I would call the gray areas. Now, when you hear gray areas, you're thinking, oh, slippery slope. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about things where he doesn't give explicit command, right? I welcome you to find me a scripture that says, you cannot watch movies that are R-rated under any circumstance, right? Or PG-13. I don't know if you know this. Like, back in the 80s and the 90s, whew, I turned on some movies. I was like, oh, nope, yep, that was a different rating back then, right? Like, you would think it would be going the other direction. But it, listen, there are all kinds of things in life that you actually need to just be able to discern for yourself, right? Is it sinful? Is it selfish? Is it sacrilegious? And is it stupid? And there are some things that we watch that are just stupid to watch, right? And the reality is I have to ask those questions. But there is this area that is outside the general will of God that you are free to just live your life. It's actually one of the things I love about David. Did you notice in the story of David and Goliath, David never once asks if he can fight Goliath. Like, if I was going to go fight Goliath, I would want to be certain, right? Like, 
No, no, I need a rhema word from heaven. I need some writing on the wall. I need a prophet to come. I need something if I'm going to go out there against this guy. But David's basic way of thinking is this. Is there not a cause? Like, who knows? Maybe God will show up and I'll get to do something great for him. But he's not sitting around on his laurels just waiting to hear from God whether he should do something. His basic premise is, is there not a cause? And here's the thing. Sufficient to the cause is the courage thereof. I'll give you an example. I've used this before. Imagine my girls are playing out in the front yard, right? And I see in the corner of my yard, sneaking across the yard, a lynx. And my daughter's over playing in the grass with her bunny ears on. The lynx is like, hmm, that'll feed me for a bit, right? And he's creeping his way over towards my daughter. And I don't look out there and think, I don't know, maybe I could take that lynx. Maybe I couldn't. Like, No, I'm out of my house, and I am on it, right? Like, the lynx doesn't have a chance. I will do sufficient to the cause is the courage thereof. Imagine I look out, and the lynx is making its way across the yard about to attack my neighbor's cat. Get it! Get it! I know it's cannibalism, but I don't care. Get it! I don't even care. Like, there ain't no way I'm risking my life. I ain't risking nothing, right, to rescue a cat. Like, My child, sufficient to the cause is the courage thereof. And that's how David looks at the world. He's like, this man is mocking the sovereign God of all the universe. I don't know if God's going to join me, but there's a cause in front of me. And that's how David functions. It's passionate, but in his desires, he is sincere. And I want you to understand something. Many of us have been hamstrung for much of our life, terrified that we might make the wrong decision. And unless God has spoken clearly to you about something or it is in his general will, you are free to go and live in those areas of life. You've probably lived your life thinking, what if I go to the wrong school? What if I marry the wrong person? What if I miss plan A? And I would just tell you, get moving. Like there are all kinds of areas in life where you could just take action and you could move forward and who knows what God might do in those moments. And he has every capacity to tell you no if he wants you to stop. That's where you and I have to be sensitive, right? We have to listen. But if I've concluded that this isn't sinful, it isn't selfish, it isn't sacrilegious, and it isn't stupid, it may be within the will of God that I take that step and get to see him do something extraordinary through my life. Amen? Which brings me to with friends like these. I uh, just did my birthday celebration stuff over this weekend. Uh, Man, it was great. Thanks for all the birthday wishes um, and uh, the snow machines, all that stuff um, (laughs) that you donated, gave. Um, I'll send you a tax receipt. Um, uh, no, it was really great. I was actually surprised on numerous fronts, um, which is hard to do. I'm usually a pretty suspicious person uh, in a really good way. Um, and, but yet, I was surprised on a few different uh, occasions. But the biggest one for sure, um, we went to dinner in Anchorage with some good friends, Aaron and Jenny Weiser and uh, Brian and Amanda Cook uh, from ACF. And uh, we had dinner in Anchorage and came back from dinner in Anchorage. And I was on the phone with my son because they weren't able to make it up here, um, and, uh, and just chatting and wishing me happy birthday. Uh, and I get back to my house, and my son and my daughter-in-law, and m- maybe most important, grandbaby Finn, were all at my house when I got home, like totally surprised me. Uh, that's why I didn't write a sermon for today. Um, but, uh, 
but one of the things I've been thinking a lot about, and, and I posted something on this a few days ago, but I've been reflecting on some things. And one of the things I've been reflecting on, in particular as Pastor Garland was sharing last week, is the kinds of people that David surrounded himself with. And uh, Pete put together a little birthday celebration for me on Thursday. I think we have a picture of it here. Um, And I'm looking around that table, and I'm like, man, that's a weird group of people. (laughs) Like, in fact, my friends in general are rather bizarre. There isn't like a common denominator, like they're all pastors or... Right, I think the only common denominator with my best friends is that they're all men, <laughs> which is great. Uh, but, but here's what I, I realized. The common denominator and the people that I am most attracted to, the people I want to spend my life running with and I want to spend my life around, the common denominator, as I think about each and every one of them, is that they are people who repent quickly. They're, they're people like David who have this heart that is inclined. They take extreme ownership, and they move quickly towards God in each and every moment. As I look at David, because God never asked for a temple, but God allows David to build a temple, what I realize about David is that David is a man who has three particular characteristics that really make him a man after God's own heart. David runs relentlessly after God. And David repents quickly before God. And David receives blessing from God. That's the kind of person I want to be. In fact, at the lunch we had the other day, one of the guys asked the question, at 50, since you're so old now, the assumption is that you must be wise concluded I'm pretty much the same person I was four days ago at this point. They said, what's the thing that you've learned about God over the past 50 years that you most appreciate? That was super easy for me to answer. He's faithful. Like he's the same. It's the same God that he was when I was a kid. Same God I read about in the Bible. Like God's faithful. He's consistent. He's consistent in his love for me. He's consistent in his pursuit of me. He is the hound of heaven. He's relentless in running after me. He brings me to repentance over and over and over again and has the capacity to redeem those things that I've gotten wrong. And he pours out blessing on me. I can't tell you how many days that I just think I have no idea why he blesses me in the ways that he does. I can tell you it's not because I'm a better person than anyone else. He's just so faithful, so generous, so kind, and I can depend on it. And when all's said and done, if I were to write my own eulogy, I would really only want to say one thing. Here lies Jonathan Walker. Made it to 50, 50 and a half. His life was over he was faithful. That'd be enough. That if I could reciprocate that faithfulness in every area of life, I think that's the thing I most appreciate about God. 
fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, the first chapter of the scriptures I memorized with my dad years ago, Paul makes this declaration to this young pastor, Timothy. He says, even when we are faithless, God remains faithful. For he cannot disown himself. He cannot deny who he is. I don't know about you, but I'm really grateful for his faithfulness. That even when I get it wrong, he has the capacity to redeem it. That he sees my heart, not just my actions. That he runs after me and draws me back to himself over and over again and chooses to bless me in the middle of the mess. I invite you to stand with me. What you're going to discover as we make our way the rest of the way through Samuel, and trust me, next week we're going to be taking a look at probably, no, definitely one of the most challenging and devastating moments in the life of David next week. But what you're going to discover is that even in those moments, David repents quickly. He runs relentlessly after God. God still shows favor to him. So Jesus, as we lift up our voices in these next few moments, would you capture our hearts with affection for you? Would you reveal to us individually in this moment your faithfulness? Would you show us the ways that you've been consistent? And may that cause worship to well up in us. Jesus, we love you. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play.